Is there a place for public denunciation? Of course there is. But only after every effort has been made to correct and clarify those deficiencies. If Priscilla and Aquila had immediately denounced Apollos as a false teacher, they would have lost him forever as a friend and an ally in the gospel. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. In this chapter, we see the apostle recruiting and developing an impressive church planting team. We're seeing whole cities turned upside down and whole new communities arising in their midst. This is a season of expansion, development, and rapid change. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bibles open in front of you today to Acts chapter 18. In this chapter, Luke concludes his narrative of Paul's second missionary journey. We pick up the story at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Let's just pause here and notice a few things. Corinth was at that time the Roman capital of Achaia, in the same way that Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia. Whenever possible, Paul targeted cities that were important from a political or economic standpoint. He will preach wherever he is, but it cannot be denied that Paul appears to have prioritized certain locations over others. And we're going to hear about Paul's extended ministry in two strategic cities over the course of this chapter and the next. Paul spends 18 months in Corinth and then nearly two and a half years in the city of Ephesus. Those were regional hubs, and the apostle believed that if he built up churches in those cities— then they would naturally take the gospel to their surrounding towns and villages. And indeed, that seems to be what happened. So, back to our story. Paul is in Corinth, verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. There are a few things here we should probably remark upon. First of all, Luke makes mention of a decree by Claudius to expel Jews from Rome. This likely refers to an edict from around AD 49 or 50. Interestingly, the historian Suetonius said that this particular expulsion was the result of riots in Rome at the instigation of Christus, which many modern-day historians believe is a reference to Jesus Christ. It seems that there were riots in Rome among the Jews over the identity and significance of Christ. And in order to keep the peace, the Jews generally, or those directly involved in the riots, were expelled from the city. As a result of these events, Aquila and Priscilla came to Corinth. Now, we should probably also say a word or two about Paul the tent maker. We should begin by saying that Paul was not opposed to gospel workers earning their living from their preaching and teaching. On the contrary, he says in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That word honor actually means remuneration, tribute, payment, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and 
the laborer deserves his wages. So, obviously, Paul was in favor of a paid clergy. As John Owen said famously, preaching is no man's hobby. Generally speaking, pastoral ministry is a full-time concern, and it doesn't leave a lot of room for other industry. However, while Paul did record taking gifts and receiving support from certain churches, the church in Philippi obviously being prominent among those, he nevertheless often supported himself by being a tent maker. So what do we make of all that? I think what we would be wise to say is that pioneer preachers, pioneer missionaries, should probably have the ability to support themselves, at least for a time, by means of some sort of skill or trade. Paul tended to preach where there was no church to support him. He tended to leave once the church was established and stable. So Paul's example is probably an appropriate reference for pioneer workers. And then Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 5 is probably an appropriate reference for more established ministries. Lastly here, we should just notice that Paul is still holding to his general pattern. Verse 4 says that when he went into Corinth, he was initially to be found preaching in the synagogue. We pick up the story again in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. By the way, notice that pattern again. Believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now here we see again this very useful pattern, very interesting pattern. Paul goes into a city, and as a well-educated Jewish man, right, having studied at Hebrew Harvard at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, he's invited to bring the sermon at the next Sabbath meeting. And he does so. Based on one of the three readings, he would have preached a sermon showing how all the Old Testament anticipations and expectations landed gloriously and finally upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! He preached the word about Christ. And people got saved. But of course, some people didn't. And some of them became very upset. So upset that eventually... Paul was kicked out and barred from the Jewish synagogue. So he left and he took a bunch of people with him. In this case, he actually takes the lead pastor with him. It says that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole family. Can you imagine that? A guest preacher comes to town, takes your pulpit for a few weeks, converts your pastor and half your church, and then leaves and takes everybody with him. That's what happened. No wonder there was a riot. Now, notice, too, that God tells Paul this time to weather the storm for a bit before moving on. We don't know whether Paul was thinking about leaving. We just know that God told him not to. God told him to keep preaching. 
because he had many people in that city. That's an interesting phrase. Keep preaching, Brother Paul, until you have drawn out all of those I have destined for salvation. So Paul stayed and he kept preaching in a house church right next door to the synagogue he had half emptied. He preached for 18 months, teaching the word of God among them. Pastor Paul, I'm curious about why it is that sometimes Paul and his companions would leave a city right away when they faced opposition, and then other times, it seemed like it made them kind of almost double down, dig in their heels, so to speak. Is Paul being inconsistent, or is there some kind of method to his madness? Well, you're absolutely right in noting that inconsistency, but it's not an inconsistency in Paul. It's really just an inconsistency in the flow of the narrative. Sometimes Paul preached, and if and when people began to oppose him, he would leave. We see that, for example, in Acts 13. In Acts 13, Paul preaches a fantastic sermon. Uh, Many people believed, but then some people began to really oppose him. So he left and went on to the next city. But then in the next city, which happened to be Iconium, Luke tells us, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So... They remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. So the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles against them, so they remained a long time. Those, those sentences don't logically seem to fit together. Yeah, exactly right. We expect that to say, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles against them, so they left and went to Lystra, <laughs> the next town down the road. But that's not what it says. It says they stayed. They doubled down. They dug in their heels. Right. That's kind of my point. It seems like the response to opposition isn't always the same. Yeah, and it gets even more interesting. In Acts 14, verse 5, so just two verses later, Luke tells us, When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra. So clearly there was some kind of threshold that the Apostle Paul was aware of. If All he was facing was insults, opposition, arguments, vilification, and pushback. Then he stayed. He he doubled down. But if people were making an attempt to have him killed, then he made the decision to move on. Okay, I I think I can understand that, right? Threatening your life, it's time to move on. But obviously, for the sake of the gospel, it would have been wrong for Paul to throw his life away. If he could stay alive, keep preaching the gospel— then that would be in the best interest of everyone. Yeah, exactly. Basically, if I could summarize, I would say that Paul was content to operate in that space between dangerous and deadly. He understood that insults, mockery, and marginalization were simply the cost of doing business. But if they were planning to take his life, then he shook the dust off his feet and moved on to the next town. Okay, so then... I would argue that the Bible never encourages us to seek martyrdom. We are to be willing to give our lives for the cause of Christ, if we have to, but we're not to seek that. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Listen, human life is precious. Your life is precious. And the Lord expects you to fulfill the charge and commission he has given you. So going out in a blaze of glory in the first town you come to is probably not the plan. That's probably not wise. Proverbs 27, 12 says, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So the Bible commands taking reasonable precautions to preserve your life. And so Paul, who was definitely not afraid to die for Christ if he was called upon to do so, nevertheless does not throw his life away cheaply 
once it becomes clear that the window for gospel work in a particular area has closed. When it's time to go, it's time to go. I think that's one of the things we learn from these stories of Paul's missionary travels. He was willing to eat a lot of abuse, but he knew that sometimes it makes more sense to pack up and move on to the next town. And I think Christians may need to dust off that sort of wise counsel as we begin to face similar dangers here in the years and decades ahead. Mm. Yeah, I suspect we will be spending a great deal of time in that space you mentioned between dangerous and deadly. Yeah, and, and so this lesson cuts both ways. I think for some, the message here is to stay in that place that is between dangerous and deadly. Stay in that place where they're mocking you and opposing you and vilifying you, but not yet trying to kill you. But then for other people, I think the message here is that we're not to seek out martyrdom. Life is precious, and it's hard to preach the gospel when you're dead. So play the long game. Yeah, I think that's great counsel. All right, let's jump back into the story now at verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So, having failed to indict Paul, they turn on poor Sosthenes, whom we presume became the new ruler of the synagogue after Crispus had been converted. And they beat him up in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention. Can you even visualize this? Right? These, these elders are losing their minds. They invited this well-educated rabbi fellow named Paul to guest preach at their church, and the brother went and converted the pastor and half the congregation, then left and took up shop in the house next door. And obviously, Sosthenes was powerless to woo back the people Paul had stolen, so they beat him up. You just need to visualize this stuff so that you can catch the flavor and some of the intensity of what's going on. Things are getting intense. We're beating people up now just to express our frustration with how things are going. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. So the church being well-established, their right to exist, having been at least implicitly established by Gallio's failure to prosecute, Paul feels that now's a good time to move on. So he set sail for Syria by way of Ephesus in Asia Minor. Paul is going on furlough, basically. And for some reason or another, he takes with him Priscilla and Aquila, at least for the first part of the journey. It looks like they only go as far as Ephesus, whereupon Paul takes his leave and heads home to the sending church in Antioch. Verse 19. At Sincrae, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. Luke adds this detail almost as an afterthought. Sincrae was the port from which Paul would have sailed uh, from Corinth. Apparently, before setting sail, Paul shaved his head as part of a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vows usually involve temporary abstinence from alcohol and cutting one's hair. This could be done as an act of thanksgiving 
for blessings already received or as a form of prayer seeking future blessings. It isn't clear here whether Paul is shaving his head to conclude the vow or to begin it. Either is possible and it probably doesn't matter. The point is that Paul is still a Jew and he is expressing himself to God in customary Jewish ways. Now, some people are troubled by that, but I don't think they need to be. Again, the issue is whether a person is doing these Jewish things in order to be saved, in order to earn a right standing with God. If not, and clearly I don't think that's the case here, then it is not theologically inappropriate for Paul to pray and thank God in typically Jewish ways. I, Howard Marshall, is helpful here. He says, Paul was simply expressing gratitude to God in the manner traditional at this time. His action is historically possible and theologically acceptable. Ihard Marshall obviously assumes that Paul is doing the Nazarite vow to express thanks for a blessed missionary journey. At the conclusion of it, he uh, completes his vow. That's how Marshall is seeing it, as opposed to a prayer for safe journeys home. Either way, I like what he says at the end. His action is historically possible. This was how Jews did it at the time and theologically acceptable. It doesn't in any way infringe on Paul's theology or the Jerusalem Council's decision. He's not doing this to earn favor or to get saved. He's just praying to God as Jews were wont to do. I see no reason to say any more than that. Verse 19, And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. We should note here that again, just because Paul said back in verse 6 that he was going to the Gentiles now, that doesn't mean that Paul has changed strategies. Those statements have a local reference, not a universal reference. Paul went to the Jews first in each city, and then when kicked out of the synagogue, went to the Gentiles generally. So here in Ephesus... He begins anew with the Jews. But this time, he's just passing through. He's headed home for furlough. But he does promise that one day soon, he will come back. Verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. These verses tell us about Paul's furlough, although not in great detail, and then about the start of his third missionary journey. After spending some time in Antioch at the home church, whether weeks or months, we don't really know, he sets off overland through Galatia and Phrygia, traveling north and then west, speaking at churches that he had now visited twice previously, while making his way generally back toward Ephesus. That's where Luke's attention goes next. He says, verse 24, Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. What a great story that is. What an example that is to us. Here's a brother, Apollos, who had a partial grasp of the gospel. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, but only so far as the baptism of John. Presumably, he knew that the Messiah was at hand and that people needed to repent in order to prepare for God's new work of grace. And he obviously knew that Jesus fit into that somehow. Luke says that he was teaching accurately things about Jesus. Maybe he knew some of the healing stories. Maybe maybe knew about the miracles. Maybe, maybe he had even sat in on some of the teaching. We don't know. We know he was saying true stuff, but not enough true stuff. It would seem that he didn't understand the cross or didn't even know about the cross, what happened, what it meant, and he didn't know about the resurrection. He only talked about that after he had been mentored by Priscilla and Aquila. But here's what's interesting. What would we call today a person who preached about Jesus, his character, his sermons, his miracles, etc., without ever talking about the cross and the resurrection? What, what would we call that person? Almost certainly we would label them as a liberal or maybe even as a heretic. We, we, we'd, we'd definitely say he's a false teacher. Thank goodness Priscilla and Aquila did not have access to the internet. Robbed of that outrage amplifier, they actually developed a relationship with this brother and began to work with him towards a more accurate, biblical, and robust understanding of the gospel. Love what F.F. Bruce says here. How much better it is to give such private help to a preacher whose ministry is defective than to correct or denounce him publicly. Now, is there a place for public denunciation? Of course there is. But only after every effort has been made to correct and clarify those deficiencies. If Priscilla and Aquila had immediately denounced Apollos as a false teacher, they would have lost him forever as a friend and an ally in the gospel. Now, you've probably noticed that Luke shifts here in referring to this couple as Priscilla and Aquila with the wife's name first. We often wonder whether that is significant. Some think it is. Some think it means that she was the more outspoken or the more noble in terms of her birth. Others seem to think it means nothing at all. We should probably be careful here about asking this text to bear more theological weight than it is rated for. I think what can be safely said is that this couple worked as a team, and both husband and wife played a very important role on that team. They mentored young people. And they gave strong support to the church in Ephesus. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I was curious about what you said there about the way Priscilla and Aquila handled the not entirely ready for prime time <laughs> preaching of Apollos. You quoted F.F. F. Bruce as saying, quote, How much better it is to give such private help to a preacher whose ministry is defective than to correct or denounce him publicly. It's a really interesting perspective, and I agree with it 100%. 
but I also want to make sure that people aren't going to overhear that. You aren't saying that preachers should be allowed to say whatever they want, even if it departs from the historic boundaries of the Christian faith, are you? No, I'm definitely not saying that. I'm saying that there is such a thing as the order of operations. You don't begin by calling somebody out as a heretic. You don't begin by writing a blog denouncing the pastor across the road. You begin with some one-on-one conversation, or as in this story, some two-on-one conversation. Priscilla and Aquila took this young man aside. They didn't rebuke him publicly. They spoke to him personally. Now, if he had rejected their counsel and, and had kept on preaching a dangerously defective gospel, then he probably would have ended up as an unflattering reference in one of the Apostle Paul's letters. But he didn't. He responded favorably. And that's the thing. Some people are not heretics. They are just undereducated or early on in their development. And so instead of firing off a blog, why not pick up the phone? Why not see if you can meet and talk? Who knows? Maybe that errant pastor could be reformed and turned into a lifelong friend and ally. Who knows? It has happened before, and it's happening right here in this story. So it's worth making every effort to do this sort of thing the right way. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. That's a good word. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 